Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. I'm Ollie Smith and this week we're going to be talking about financial planning exams. Now sat with me today is someone you may be familiar with if you've been reading anime over the past couple of months or indeed have been attending events organised by the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment. I'm joined by Jackie Lockie who is the CISI's Head of Financial Planning. Hello Jackie, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. Good stuff. Um, Now you may be aware that there is a little rule with this podcast which is that all guests undertake the weekly quiz uh, and given that we are here to discuss the topic of exams, I thought I would ask you a few general questions about that. So I'm here to test you on tests and examine you on exam- exams. Um, I have five questions and I promise you'll learn something. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, question one. The driving test. One of the most intense exams you can do, probably, and at a young age most of the time. Um, last year, the government made tweaks to the test to bring it in line with what it called modern motorist behaviour. But did they allow learner drivers onto the motorway? Yes or no? No. They did. Oh, wow. Incorrect. They did. But under, under the changes, they have to be uh, in a dual control car. Uh-huh. Uh, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what difference that would make. If you're going to really, really mess things up on the motorway, I'm not really sure what a dual control car would do I to save the situation. But. When I passed my driving test, you had to pass your test first, but then you still had to go with an instructor onto the motorway the first time. Really? Yeah. Gosh, I mean, it just scares me to death thinking about it. For, for context, I haven't done mine which is why I'm scared to death. (laughs) Question two, another type of test for you. Let's talk special forces. The endurance march is supposedly the toughest and final test undertaken by candidates for the UK special forces. That's the SAS, the SBS, etc. They have to do a 64 kilometer march with a 70 pound Bergen. But what's the time limit that they have to complete it in? Is it A, 20 hours, B, 24 hours, or C, 25 hours? I think it's probably 24 hours. It's 20 hours. How gruelling is that? Apparently even excellent candidates fail at that one, which sounds utterly grim, especially in the rain. I know a bit about that one. I have some friends who've done it and they say that it's quite common that they move the trucks to pick you up where wait the rendezvous point they move them around the corner so when you're absolutely exhausted you get to the rendezvous point and there's nobody there. And then it's a sign of real metal, whether you actually get up and start to walk back to the barracks. Yeah. And then the trucks are literally 200 metres around the corner. But that must feel like 10 miles yeah. when you've done that. Wow. Interesting. Uh, question three, GCSE results. I know you have a 10-year-old, so perhaps this is all in the future. <laughs> um, but let's look back to last year. Uh, you may be aware that last year was the first exam year where UK GCSE uh, pupils went through the system with the new grading levels, numbered one to nine rather than A, B, C, D, E, etc. So how many teenagers in England got a clean sweep of entirely grade nines? That's the top grade, equivalent to A star. I'll give you a clue. It's in the hundreds. Clean sweep. sweep. Kids who got all A stars, basically. 500? It's 700. So, good answer. The number of students receiving the top GCSE grades actually rose for the first time in seven years, despite the huge overhaul of grading. So, for those of you that don't like Michael Gove, that was a sort of mini victory for him, because I think that was a policy that he championed. Question four. We've done GCSEs. It's A-level results time. What was the most popular subject at A-level last year? Was it maths, English or physics? Ooh, well, having sat two out of three of those A-levels, I'd say probably English. It's maths. Oh, maths! Can you believe oh, that? Oh, that's amazing. How amazing is that? Gosh, it certainly wasn't maths when I did A-level maths. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I never did A-level maths, but I can remember watching people who did, thinking, thank God that I'm not mathematically minded. Probably shouldn't admit that as a financial journalist, but there we go, some transparency for you. The number of A-level entries for maths increased last year by 2.5% on 2017, and was up a whopping 26.8% compared to 2010, which is when I started mine. Um, a final question, multiple choice. Uh, a personal one for me. At my former university... In the lovely city of Oxford, there is a table of best-performing colleges by exam results. It's called the Norrington Table, which is ridiculous. Uh, but who topped the list last year? Was it Regent's Park College, Lincoln College, my former alma mater, or Magdalen College? I would say Magdalen College. Correct. Hey! It is Magdalen <laughs> College. Magdalen is obviously massive, so they've got loads more pupils to bump their numbers up, provided they do well. Uh, average 78.18% in their exam scores. That's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. I've seen them on University Challenge a few times, and they're pretty, pretty smart cookies. Yes. I, mean, so I studied there for a term, and it's an absolutely terrifying place. Lincoln, I should just say, came eighth with 70.63%. So still That's in the still. first. Still in the first. That's a respectable score. When I arrived there, we were way, way, way down. So thank you very much for playing. That's all right. Really, really good to have you on. Um, we are here to talk about financial planning exams, but I wanted to start the innings by saying that it strikes me that it's quite important that our listeners know who you are. So just before we get onto the specifics of exams, um, it would be worth me asking what a day in the life of Jackie looks like and what your role as Head of Financial Planning entails on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I have a, a good background of being a paraplanner, being a financial, practicing financial advisor and financial mm -hmm. planner myself, um, those in, in years gone by. Now a day in the life looks like talking to a lot of the financial planning community, mm -hmm. um, helping them understand about not just exams but about how we're trying to build the profession, um, best practice ideas uh, and things like that moving forward. So quite a lot of meetings, um, lots of emails. I, th I think I have about 2,800 emails in my inbox at the moment. Um, so um, there's always lots, lots of discussions going on. Um, you know, people, planners come to me with ideas um, and it's a case of taking those ideas on board, seeing whether they've got legs and doing yeah. something about it. But, you know, the, the whole engagement piece with the profession takes up the majority of my time. Do you enjoy it? It sounds like you do. I do, yes. yes. Yeah. Are you, are you glad that you, you're not at a stage where you're having to go through all these exams yourself, I wonder? Um, no, not really, because um, I, I've done a lot of the exams. I am a CFP myself. Sure. I've done some of the PFS exams as well in the past, as well as other professional bodies. I've done a few from each, I think, over the years. Um, and I actually quite enjoy doing exams because it helps me remember the good technical information so then I can apply it to a client, real client situation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be much more difficult for me to pass now because I'm not seeing clients anymore. Okay. Um, but I think when studying and actually being able to apply it in, in, a, in a real life situation to help somebody, mm -hmm. uh, then it really sticks in your mind then. Sure, that seems to be like the rewarding element of it. I yeah. think when we talk to IFAs, they say that a lot. Um, excellent, let's talk exams. My first question on this is broad and vague and sounds a bit like an exam question, ironically. So to what extent have exams played a central role in the professionalisation of financial planning? Have, have, has that sort of piece played the biggest part, do you think, in turning um, into a profession? It, I would say it's 50-50 uh, 
Um, exams play a huge part, I think particularly from the regulatory point of view. Mm. Um, so it's building that base of knowledge so everybody has competent knowledge yeah. across the board and then people can select different areas of specialism. So being able to prove, you know, after the pensions mis-selling scandals and all the things that have gone by in, in years past, then the regulator has been quite concerned with you know, ensuring that everybody has a min at least a minimum level yeah. of technical knowledge. And I think that that is a good step forward. But I think a lot of financial planners and power planners out there are going way beyond that because they enjoy their job so much they find that by learning more technical knowledge and applying it, you know, it really gives client the best possible service. Mm. Um, I think the other half of the profession is really about the financial planners and power planners coming together to understand best practice, to share best practice, um, and to help you know, lean on each other to build that profession, to do the right thing by the public and by their clients. Do you think there's a healthy bit of competition there? Do you I think? think? Yes, there is. Yes, it's definitely. like, I can do better in my pension exam than you. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the thing is at the end of the day, you know, and I've met people in the past who are great at passing exams, um, and you wouldn't necessarily want to let them loose on your granny uh, for giving <laughs> them advice. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's, it's about establishing that you can actually apply that knowledge in a practical environment because that's what makes the biggest difference to the public. Mm. That's quite an interesting point you just made. It seems to me that, that you're talking there about character, you know, that combining, you know, it's all very well having this sort of technical knowledge and the ability to answer questions, but if it's not combined with sort of good character, good ethics, yeah. um, is, is that a big enough part of exams, do you think? Is, is, is the ethics element sort of strong enough? Um, I don't think the ethics element is strong enough. I mean, we have discussed over many, many years about whether you can test ethics. Mm. Um, and yeah. at the CISI, we have a head of professional standards who has a degree in ethics. Um, and we quite often have this discussion about whether you can really test ethics yes. or whether that's something that's inbuilt in you. Yeah. Um, so, for example, in one of our magazines, um, I think a lot of professional bodies do this, put out kind of mini ethics challenges mm. um, and dilemmas to see what you might do. Um, and things like that are, are very good at broadening your understanding of where perhaps the lines are very grey yeah. um, and the sorts of actions that you could take. And I think that's a good thing. But I think ethics is more about best practice and learning some of the, as you know, as the profession develops, there are always some things that come in and go out, there, you know, we up, get updated with technical changes and legislation. Mm. So it's about applying all of that in, but thinking about your behaviour and what's the right thing for the client. Yeah. Um, just coming back to regulation a second, my sense is that perhaps some of our grumpier readers, shall we say, see exam requirements as being almost a type of regulation in and of themselves. Um, but I'm also mindful, you know, that certain former MPs have caused a stir in the past by saying that the minimum level of qualification the financial needed was equivalent to that of a McDonald's employee. I mean, that was in 2010 before the RDR. Um, is there a balance to be struck there between access to the profession and excellence within it? And do you think we're, roughly speaking, getting that right at the moment? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there definitely is a balance to be struck because there are a large number of financial planners and power planners out there who have a huge amount of knowledge mm. and 
it, they may have been in the profession quite a number of years and it doesn't necessarily mean that they know less than somebody else who's just passed an exam. Um, and because they're experienced with a huge number of clients and you know, sorting matters out over many years, that quite often is not always disregarded completely, but seems to have lesser emphasis when you've got all that experience as well as that wealth of technical knowledge, because we all have to do CPD to keep up to date. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a slight mismatch there. Um, and also, when you pass a new exam, say you're just entering the profession for the first time, basically you're taking a whole huge number of exams um, and in a fairly short period of time. But then, because you lack client knowledge, mm -hmm. um, you then are going to need somebody to you know, take you under their wing and yeah. to show you, you know, how to become a, a great financial planner. Yeah. Um, the FCA is going to be looking at this in, in its assessment of the impact of the retail distribution review this year. Um, do you think they'll be looking at the role of exams and thinking, we got that right, that's a job well done, on balance? Um, I think they will look at it and say, it's always a work in progress with these things. Yeah. But I think it is, it, it definitely is a huge step in the right direction. I think they will probably also be looking at other countries um, and place, uh, things like um, that's, that some of the news that's been going on in places like Australia, um, how financial planning regulation has changed for the advisors there, mm. um, and other jurisdictions around the world, the States, Canada, um, they will be looking and comparing what's gone on over there yeah. and how the difference in the exams has, has actually some, it, the, it's resulted in perhaps sometimes unintended consequences yeah. um, that they will be taking into account as well. So it's not just about just what's going on in the UK. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Australia because this is, of course, a story about the Australian Royal Commission, which has looked at banking financial services practices and came up with some pretty damning conclusions, dare I say, about the way in which uh, advisors are paid, for instance, and the way in which that's perhaps still a bit backwards. Um, it strikes me that the FCA are going to have very firm set of eyes on that and perhaps they're going to want to learn those lessons before they happen. Yes, definitely. And I think also what's going on in Australia, not only that, but alongside that, there is um, a shift regarding the minimum level of exam standards as well. Yeah. Um, so both of those things combined together, I'm sure that the regulator will be definitely talking to the Australian regulators um, to get the lay of the land before moving forward themselves. Perhaps it's time we send some FOI requests. <laughs> yes. Um, Pension transfers. There's obviously a bit of a hoo-ha at the moment about pension transfers. Um, I've got a couple of questions on that. I mean, does it strike you that, that, that there is enough examination when it comes to pension transfers? Or is there, should we be doing more to test people on their, you know, their regulatory knowledge, that their, their competence there, given that that's been such a controversy? I think that there are we're quite heavy on yeah. the exams. Yeah. I mean, the, the pension transfer exams are at level six, mm. which is very comprehensive. Mm. Um, is that degree level? It, yes, it's first, yeah, yeah. first second year degree level. Um, so I think from that point of view, there is already a lot of technical knowledge. Yeah. Um, what concerns me is application of that technical knowledge, particularly mm. with a lot of people using cash flow systems. 
Okay. Um, so being able to do, having a, struct, a structured and robust analysis system of, of stepper processes mm. um, that a financial advice firm might go through to ensure that, see, it's quite, it's quite easy to, if you run the calculations for a DB pension transfer mm. and then put that money into a cash flow system, it's quite easy, depending on the assumptions you make, to make that transfer look very attractive. Yes. So it's about not only having the technical knowledge, but being able to apply it mm. in combination with other pieces of software like a cash flow system. Mm. And then having that time and reflection to step back and say, okay, well, even if the figures look good, that doesn't necessarily still mean that the advice should be to transfer. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's more about that application of knowledge that yeah. interests me. Um, I was looking through our website uh, this morning about this, and um, I saw from 2017, which I was actually away that year, but um, we reported that the CISI had actually undercut the CIA's, the CI, the CIA, the CII's pension transfer exam by a few pounds to make it cheaper for IFAs to learn and qualify. Um, do you still sense that there's sort of a level of pricing competition when it comes to these exams? Um, and you know, does the CISI still have a sort of urgency on its part to make study as cost effective and you know good for value, value for money, uh, positive as as possible? Yes, I think that there are certain areas, and the financial advice exams are the areas where we compete with a number of different professional bodies, including the CII, um, the CIB as well. But and so, they're, they're, but we are very keen to keep the costs as low as possible because there is a balance. You know, there's a lot of regulation that financial advice firms are taking on. You know, those who offer, you know, are caught by MIFID, for example. Um, you know, all of the costs are ramping up. So you're basically the regulator is saying we well, need to take more exams. You know, more regulation is coming in from Europe and elsewhere. There's more focus and then more money being spent on all of those things for, to get to client service. Um, so just adding more and more in, I don't think is, is a good thing. Um, but making it cost effective, so it is that exams are both cost effective and achievable, mm -hmm. that it's not just about you know, just having another blob of knowledge, but it's being able to apply that knowledge for the benefit of the business and for the client. Yeah, sure. Um, I just wanted to ask you about, about younger financial planners, because this is a huge focus both for sort of external next-gen groups and, and indeed us too. You know, we talk to the younger end of the profession all the time. Um, is there enough support, do you think, for younger financial planners with, with their exams specifically? Bear in mind that it sort of strikes me that one of the best routes into the profession that we hear a lot about is people sidestepping a more academic route, shall we say, and starting out their careers at financial planning firms, maybe with an apprenticeship or um, and getting that sort of support uh, from the firm itself. But that may differ sort of on a firm by firm basis according to the business's size, its profitability, its resources, etc. So do you have plans within the CISI to engage more with younger planners? I mean, I know you do a lot already, but yes. is there more to be done there? Yes, I think, so the way that a lot of people came into the profession, perhaps if you go back 20 years, yeah. um, a lot of us might have worked at large investment houses or insurance companies and got a, a lot of good training there yeah. and then kind of, fell out by accident into the world of giving yeah. you know, regulated advice and then things started to develop on from there. Yeah. So with, with all of the mergers of those companies, that door has largely closed. Yeah. So the situation now is that there are a lot of young people who are trying to get into the profession who are starting work at smaller firms 
But as we've already talked about, there's a lot of regulation, a lot of costs already built into those small firms. Mm. Um, and so you need to have, if you were running a firm like that, you would need to have a lot of time and energy to be able to support a new person coming in, either with an apprenticeship scheme or, you know, as a para planner or, you know, as a trainee financial planner as well. Mm. Um, so there's a lot more that can be done, I think, to support completely new people coming into the profession. There's also more to be done, I think, for supporting financial traditional financial advisors who want yeah. to become financial planners and learn what all that's about, yeah. um, as well as wealth managers now because of the impact of changing legislation on them. Mm. There's quite a lot of them starting to become financial planners, doing a bit of cash flow um, and starting to expand their businesses as well. So as far as the, the younger generation goes, then I think definitely we have the Young Professionals Network at the CISI um, and that is specifically targeted at, well, we always say under 35, broadly speaking, mm. but essentially new people yeah. who want to learn more about the profession. Yeah, that's interesting you talk about perhaps people who are a bit older and uh, have had a sort of, they've worked under a more traditional, older school um, idea of financial advice and they want to do something a bit more sort of holistic and they want to do some more qualifications. Um, I remember I was at a graduation ceremony last year with a colleague, and we talked. We talked. We were interviewing people who'd graduated, and and uh, this guy said to me, you know, it was a, it was a real tough decision for him to whether to undertake more exams, um, the fear of failure, the fear of you know being out of touch. I mean, he himself described it sort of as a bit of an irrational thing, but he was too scared, and he took the leap, and the exams went well, and he passed and become a become chartered and. It, it all went really well, but um, what would you say to perhaps people, maybe in their you know mid forties, who are sort of thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, perhaps this is not one for me. Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? What's the message there? Well, I think you've got to look at your own situation yeah. and think to yourself, okay, well, are you employed in a business? Are you running a business? Mm. You know, what's the size of the business if you're employed? You know, what are your career prospects looking like? You know, what do you want for yourself and perhaps your family in the years to come? You know, how many hours do you want to be working? Um, you know, are there other implications that, you know, family-wise that you might want to think about yeah. um, that might have some sort of constraint on, you know, where you see yourself in the future? Um, and then you've got to think, well, actually, you know, there's still 20 or even 30 years left in you to be yes. giving great financial planning advice to mm. the public. Um, so if, if you're there already, you're probably doing it because you're passionate about it. Mm. So if you're still passionate about it, then I would say don't let go of that passion yeah. and use that passion to get you through the tough times. And whether that is, you know, taking on more exams, sitting them um, and not necessarily passing the first time round, um, but don't worry about that because actually, you know, it's, it's how a test of our character is if we pick ourselves up and dust yeah. ourselves off um, and try again. Yeah. And actually, from some of the exams that I haven't been successful the first time round, I've learned a huge amount yeah. and then I never forget it. So I've been able to apply yeah. that to, to the benefit of clients when I used to give advice. That's really interesting. Do you, do you get a lot of people who perhaps miss the past mark by a couple of marks who come back and say, you know, can we remark that? I just, I mean, maybe it's not comparable, but I can recall exams in my life where <laughs> I've had to have something remarked or my teacher was so convinced that the, you know, the examination body was, 
you know, talking crap. Yeah. <laughs> that they were like, well, we'll send it back and see what they say. Does that happen in financial yeah. planning too? Yes, it does happen. And what sort of proportion come back as a pass or, you know, as a... Um, so it depends which exams we're talking about. Um, most of the multiple choice financial planning exams, um, there is automatic feedback given yeah. when you fail anyway. So you get your own report. Okay. So it highlights the weaker areas. Um, and I think that's a huge step forward, certainly from when I did my financial planning exams. Um, it was just a straight pass or fail. Um, so there's a lot of support and feedback already built into the systems like that already. Um, and so I think that benefits candidates moving forward. And then the narrative exams, there are chief examiner's comments and you can send your, you can request for it to go back, your script mm. to go back to be remarked and then you'll get some individual comments on it. Do you get feedback from the candidates about which exams they found really hard yes. and which ones are the bane of their lives? Yes. And which ones are the bane of their lives? <laughs> well, it, again, it depends. It's, so a lot of the level six are a tough step yeah, up. Sure. Um, and what we find is that there are some professionals who, for example, some of the wealth managers who have a huge amount of experience in investment, yeah. but perhaps not so much in protection areas or estate planning areas. Okay. And then when you sit a broader level six exam um, that's a narrative, then you can quite, quite often trip yourself up. Yeah. Um, and so then you get areas of frustration about, you know, I think we, I was talking in the office last week, and you know, we love jargon, don't we, in this profession? Absolutely. So we were talking about wealth, wealth transfer planning, estate planning, mm -hmm. and IHT planning. Mm -hmm. And so there were a number of CFPs having this discussion, and we were using all the terms interchangeably because we knew what, yes. that they all broadly meant the same thing. Yes. Um, but for somebody outside looking in, yeah. that you know, a couple of other people who didn't have that knowledge, they were kind of saying to us, what on earth are you talking about? Am I talking about three different things? Yes. And we were like, oh, no, don't worry. So, you know, there, there is a bit of that. And so there can, that can cause a little bit of confusion when you're, yeah. you're sitting exams. Sure. Um, that makes me think of ESG, actually, because I think there are several topic, you know, there are several descriptions, you know, ethical investing, responsible investing, sustainable investing, environmental, sustainable governance investing, that all sort of get used interchangeably. Um, do you think that in the future we'll have an exam specifically on on that or those things? I think it's probably more likely that we will at some stage, but mm. I don't expect it will be a compulsory exam like the pension transfers. Okay. Um, I think it'll probably, I see it, it is definitely a larger area of the market that's developing. And I think mm. if you look at the research, um, there was some research, I think it was on the BBC I saw um, about a month or so ago, um, and we've done some research too, saying, suggesting that a large proportion of the public believe that they should have some form of ethical investing in their portfolio. But when you look at the flow of funds into these specific areas, yeah. it's min minimal mm. compared to you know, the rest of the, uh, the investment world. Um, so there is a mismatch, or there appears to be a mismatch, between either the public's perception and understanding of what ethical Yes. In its generic wider sense means, um, and how those giving advice, the para planners and financial planners, are picking that up and then drilling down further to find out what that really means to that particular client. Mm. Um, so I think work around best practice and perhaps questioning skills around that sort of area is probably something that's going to you know be focused on you know in the next year or two.
How interesting. What an interesting note on which to end. Um, thank you, Jackie. Pleasure having you with us. Appreciate you making the journey. Um, that's all that we've got time for this week, I'm afraid, and I'm no doubt that listeners will be sick already of hearing my bunged-up voice. I'll be back soon uh, and full of good health. Um, suffice to say, if you enjoy this podcast and like what we do, please do subscribe on iTunes, and if you're feeling particularly generous, leave us a lovely review. Uh, join us again next time for another episode, but until then, thanks for listening, and goodbye.